Thank you, Tim. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 22. Last opportunity I had to preach, we looked at Psalm 2. Both of these psalms are a part of a collection of where there is a handful of psalms that we would call messianic psalms. In other words, they uh, look ahead to the servant or the anointed one of God, the Messiah. And so today we'll be looking at a, a passage that you will be familiar with. As a matter of fact, as we were going through our responsive reading at the beginning of the service today, we, while reading through Matthew 27, was in essence reading parts of Psalm 22 because uh, there are fulfillments about the Messiah that we find there. But where I would like for us to start our attention this morning is in the first verse of John chapter 13. You don't need to turn there. We're not going to look at it very much, but I just want to look at a one verse here as we enter into uh, not only the message, but as we look at, generally speaking, this week of the passion of Christ. John records in his gospel, chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Those that the Father had given them in this world, this world in which we really don't belong as God's people, he loved them. But it's interesting that he didn't say he loved them. He loved them to the end. One writer in commenting on this verse was speaking in terms as human beings, our tendency is to love people until we have been forsaken. Jesus loved through being forsaken. Thinking about what we represent in our sin, in our rejection of God, to consider the fact that we can sing songs this morning about God's love. And over the past few weeks, we've been talking about and singing about God's love, that he loved us in spite of our attitude towards him. And it's only because of his amazing grace that we were able to see him for who he truly is. And we will see him for who he truly was on the cross today very clearly from Psalm 22. Now, we understand the Psalms give us an opportunity to see very clearly who man is. The psalmist often reflect the emotions of the heart from every perspective, whether it be through anger, whether it be through frustration, whether it be through sorrow, whether it be through joy. The Psalms, all 150 of them, give us an incredible insight as to who we are as mankind. It also gives us an incredible insight as to who God is. As God invites us with our understanding that he already knows who we are. He understands how we feel. He understands and knows what we think. And so that we can understand the honesty and the sincerity and the genuineness of who God is in relationship with man. But in these Messianic Psalms, we get the benefit of seeing the God-man. This incredible idea of the incarnation of Jesus Christ 
being fully God and being fully man. In these messianic psalms, we often see the genuineness of both natures. We can appreciate that, seldom understand it all, but we can enjoy the benefit of seeing that. So when we look at Psalm 22, we get an intense picture of Christ, understanding that as the uh, in your Bible, you probably have a little inscription saying that this is a Psalm of David. Uh, like many of the Psalms, we don't know exactly what part of his life he was referring to. As I think about the desperate situations that David found himself in, I could probably see some connection in this Psalm with him running away from his son Absalom. You may recall back in 2 Samuel chapter 15 that his son Absalom was very upset with his father, wanted to overthrow him and take over the kingdom. And there was a conspiracy against David and David being fearful, not only of his throne, but of his life, ran, found himself being persecuted by even other people. Even there was an individual in chapter 16 in which he goes and discovers that he's a descendant of Saul. And well, he didn't care much for David either. But there are only limitations as what, how we can find a connection with David's life specifically. But we do give credit to him for writing this. But as we have the benefit of the New Testament scriptures, we understand that this was a prophecy about someone greater than David. That while this was a reflection of David's life and as the Holy Spirit used him to bend this song, that it was something that was reflecting his own emotional bearings that this is actually pointing towards our savior. The psalmist uses a, a device in literary terms that for lack of a better way of putting it, is in cycles. We, we see similar things in the book of Judges. You may recall that the writer of Judges uses this where there are cycles that go through the people of Israel and, they, and all the way through the book, it talks about how God had blessed them, put them in an elevated position, but they would sin. God would bring judgment on the people and then they would repent. God would restore them and then they would sin and then they would find this, the consequences of their sin. And this cycle would go on through the book of Judges. We see something similar in the book of Revelation as Jesus is giving his letters uh, to the church, the seven churches in Asia where there would be a commendation. There would be usually not in all seven of them, but there would be a word of warning. But there would also be a, a word of promise that there would be given. In the, and so this literary style is not unique. But we see it happening here in Psalm 22. And the outline that you have in front of you, hopefully, uh, sort of breaks down this psalm in those cycles, at least the first part of the psalm through verse 21. But the first cycle that we see is found in verse 1 through 5. If you will follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. If you were, if you they trusted and were not disappointed. 
We see a cycle here where it begins with a lamentation or a cry for help. And it ends up with a phrase or an idea of confidence in God. This will happen about three times here in the Psalm 22, and this is the first one. And this first one, because it is so dynamic in its wording, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that gets your attention right off the bat. We understand that the, uh, this idea of forsaken in the Hebrew language means to leave or to loosen. That is to relinquish. When it's translated in the Greek, it means to desert. Uh, when Jesus quotes this phrase from the cross, as we read in our responsive reading today in the Aramaic, it means literally, you have left me. So there's no denying that this is a very serious word, that this is a word that is extreme. It leaves one with a, a, a normal sense, emotionally speaking, of abandonment. We're reminded of Jesus' connection to this in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, where the writer of Hebrews says, In the days of his flesh, in other words, when Jesus, the Son of God, who in this portion of the book of Hebrews is being described as a greater high priest than Moses and Aaron and even Mel after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, the reason why I chose to title this message today, Unwavering Hope in the Midst of Suffering, is because we're looking at the cries of Jesus Christ while he was in the midst of the most intense suffering that we can possibly imagine, humanly speaking, and in a spiritual sense that we can never understand as believers in Jesus Christ. But it was in the days in which he lived on this earth, and particularly on the cross, as the writer of Hebrews says, that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, knowing that there was someone able to save him from death. And it says that he was heard. But yet the psalmist in Christ, in quoting this psalm from the cross, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning, from my prayers? In other words, why are you not listening to my prayers? Yet there was an understanding that yet you're holy. Now, as R.C. Scroll put it in his little book, The Truth on the Cross, which if you ever have a chance to ever just go on the website and look at a bookstore somewhere, this is a beautiful little book that's easily read, but it gives a great understanding about the truthfulness of what was taking place on the cross. Puts it this way. If Christ was not truly forsaken by his father during his execution, then no atonement occurred because forsakenness was the penalty for sin that God established in the old covenant. You see, God gives us pictures throughout the Old Testament of covenants that he would make, covenants that we're familiar with, in which he would give a promise 
of a blessing if you obeyed me or a curse if you disobeyed me. We, we see this easily in the, in the Mosaic Covenant in which God gave to his people that he chose out from all the other nations. He gave them by laws to live by. He gave them a moral code to live by. He gave them specific civil instructions about how to live with one another. And he told them up front, if you follow these, you will be blessed. But there's more words in which he gave them about if they didn't follow these instructions, if they didn't follow his laws, that they would be cursed. And if Christ was to suffer for our sin, for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, for our sake, he made him, what? To be sin for us. Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Christ was forsaken because he was taking our place in a covenant. It's a new covenant. It's a new covenant in his blood. But that covenant that he was enduring for us was in our place. He was hanging on a cross for our sin. This is one psalm in which there is no confession of sin and there's no cursing of the enemy because Jesus Christ had no sin, yet he was a curse. So in order for our sins to be atoned for, Christ taking those sins on himself for us was cursed, thus was forsaken. This is a picture that we have a hard time understanding because, again, we, we forsake. We run away from things when we just don't like them. We, we, we uh, scatter when things get difficult. Jesus, on the other hand, being the sinless one, was being forsaken, but not because of what he had done, because of what we have done. But it may make you scratch your head for just a second. Wait a minute. Now you say, well, Mark, I remember in the last few weeks, we've even sang songs. How deep the Father's love for us talks about how the Father turned his face away, right? The sky was darkened. We sang a song just a couple of weeks ago about how God was estranged from God. It sounds extreme. And some skeptics would love for us to take that to a great extreme. Those in Judaism and those even in Islam love for us to talk about how God was estranged from God because that seems to them to be an argument to say, well, that means that the, that just blew up your whole idea of the Trinity, that God was actually in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ was God because, well, they, they, was, they were separated. Yet we have others on the other extreme of saying, you know, 
we have to be careful. We, we may not even want to attribute this verse to Jesus Christ on the cross because we don't want to go there. We can't say that the son was forsaken by the father because that would seem there would be a break in fellowship to the point where there was a distinction between the two and Jesus Christ was less than God. But I think we can solve this issue by just understanding that this is no more complicated than the incarnation itself. That we understand from John chapter 8, Jesus said, when you had lifted up the Son of Man, and again, obviously, he's speaking up of being crucified, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Jesus understood that the fellowship that he enjoyed with the Father was constant, that the Father never left him or would leave him alone. This becomes a little bit more intense when Jesus is speaking about the hour which is soon to come in John chapter 16. He says, indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own house. Now, when would this be? This would be when he was arrested and crucified. And what happened to the disciples he was speaking to? They, they went home. They were scattered. And they left Christ alone. But Jesus said, yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. So what are we left here with? Well, we, again, have to understand as we were reading in our responsive reading from Matthew chapter 27, that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And this is a period in which we see God, as it were, turning his face from the sun. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was shortly after this, as Luke records in Luke chapter 23, about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the earth until, or the whole land until the ninth hour. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Within just moments, during this period of darkness, in which Jesus was bearing the burden of our sins upon his shoulders physically on the cross, shedding his blood for our atonement. There was a word first of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the word, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. How can we justify those two statements? Because we're speaking about a person who is at once being fully God and at once being fully man. Once being fully God and that his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit can never be broken because they are eternally one God. Yet when Jesus Christ is man, being man, why? So that he could, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, not only be tempted like we are, but to suffer as we do so that he could be truly a great high priest, was experiencing what anyone will experience when they are in their sin, and that is being forsaken by God. 
You say, well, that doesn't explain it very well. <laughs> and I'm just going to tell you that you can't understand it very well. This is one of those things we just have to take by faith, understanding that no more than we can explain how God can become flesh and remain God fully and be man fully, can we explain how God can also be with one with God, the Father and the Spirit as the Son, and yet at the same time experience the wrath of God, the being forsaken by God because of sin. Even as Pastor Charlie in our prayer this morning of confession talking about how God cannot be in the presence of sin. There had to be a forsaken. But it was done by someone who could never be separated from God. It's just simply we are thrust into this mystery of the incarnation. And in the midst of his lament, he was still confident that a holy God hears his cry and rescues those who cry out to him. Verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus, I'm sure, as he was quoting from verse 1, was very sure of what was in the next four verses, as well as the next 30 verses. He was sure that even though he was being forsaken in the flesh, bearing our sin, that there was a God who he could trust to deliver him. So that's the first cycle of lament and confidence that we see by the psalmist here as portrayed in the life of Christ, the Messiah. The second cycle we see in verses 6 through 11. And as we go forward in these laments, we will see more and more a reflection upon the flesh. The flesh that Jesus Christ took upon himself and experienced. Verse 6, but I am a worm, not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They make their mouths at me, in other words. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Now this is a desperate situation, no doubt. This is a situation where, because of the circumstances that the psalmist finds himself in, finds himself lower than a man. In other words, he has been brought very low, very humble by whatever it is that he was experiencing. And when we think about Jesus Christ on the cross, the shame, the incredible disrespect for not just 
man, but understanding that he was the son of God in their midst, sustaining their very lives, giving them breath to breathe, giving them the ability to say the words of cursing to him, to, to give them strength in their hand to slap him across the face. I've been brought, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm, I'm a worm, scorned by mankind, despised by the people, all who seek me, they mock me. We see this, do we not, in the road to the cross, in Jesus' life. The mockery, the cruelty, the, hu the humility that they were bringing upon him. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. In other words, they set their jaw in a certain way in their arrogance and in their pride, challenging him. Now, the psalmist used the words that the Messiah was relying on. Yet they used them in scorn while he was on the cross. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. You see this all in Matthew chapter 27 being taken, fulfilling in Jesus' life. He was despised, yet he was trusting God to be near him. There again we have in verse 9 that word yet. You're the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Kind of sounds a little bit like Jeremiah chapter 1, does it not? To where God tells Jeremiah, before I formed you, I knew you. Before you were born, you were consecrated. And you were appointed to be a prophet. Now, Jeremiah's life was not smooth. He was confident in what God called him to be. But it brought upon him some pretty rough living. So he was arrested. And was not treated as the prophet of God should have been treated. So we see that the psalmist and ultimately in, in, in the Christ, that there was an understanding that even though I have been brought to this low place in my life, it's not apart from your providence. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, your eyes have seen, uh, your eyes have seen me in an unformed substance. But in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. But as yet there was not one of them. Do you have that understanding about life? That before you were even formed in your mother's womb, that your days were written in God's book? before they ever happen. Everyone. Just as it was ordained for Jesus Christ to be scorned and ridiculed by mankind, 
as low as he had been brought, he understood that from the very beginning, before the very beginning, it was ordained for him to be there to the point where when he was trying to tell his disciples for yet another time how he would die for their sins, what did Peter say? Never. And Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not going to thwart what God has ordained. See, the psalmist understood this. From the very beginning, you took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. I was you, on, on you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's none to help. Remember when I was reading from John chapter 16? Jesus said, when you are scattered and you leave me alone, I will not be left alone. The psalmist is echoing that. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Where's our, where's our perspective? What is our perspective when we're suffering? Do we understand it as being part of what God has written? And from the very beginning, before we were formed in our mother's womb, before we were birthed into this world, understanding that God is sovereign, that God ordains the very breath that you breathe. There's not a step that you take that he is not ruling over, that he is near. Trouble is near, but God is near. The psalmist understood again in this cycle of understanding there was a Time of lamenting over my condition, my circumstances. Yet he was confident that, that the holy God hears his cry and rescues. The third cycle, found in verse 12 through 21. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But, but, but you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. 
Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You see, each one of these cycles builds up. And it's just like I couldn't help but thinking. As we were singing my Jesus fair. Those first few verses, I can get overwhelmed. Pierced by thorns, grown from the fall. He who gave the curse was torn to end the curse. He was scorned by men and blasphemy. He was torn by nails of cruel men. And to his cross, as grace prevailed, God pinned my wretched sin. He was crushed by God in judgment just. The Father turned his rod on Christ who has made sin for us. But, verse 5, my Jesus strong shall come to reign, to reign in majesty. The Lamb arose, and death is slain. Lord, come in victory. Because you know verse 5 is there, you can sing the other four verses with joy and confidence. Because Jesus knew that the rest of Psalm 22 was there, he could say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew the rest of the story. He knew the purpose of what was going on in his life. He knew that even though he was encompassed by evil, wicked, sinful man, and even the devil himself, you have rescued me. This word that's translated, at least in the English Standard Version, save me from you have rescued me, is actually, in other versions, hear me. As if to say that as I send this prayer, it is as good as done. For the psalmist says, you have, you have, you have rescued me. Not that I hope that you will rescue me, which hope in the Lord is sufficient. All of the victories have not been won. But when we can say, you have, we not only have an understanding of what it is that we're going through, but we understand that there is a purpose for it so that we can say with joy, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, even before they were formed in their mother's womb. In the midst of this lament, he was sure in his weakness he would be heard. Which again, as if you couldn't tell, that it was culminating in my heart in just preaching this, praise. That's our response. To the one who understands what it is that Christ, our Savior, suffered through in his love for us. 
We can't be, help but be like the psalmist in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You have no excuse to come into this auditorium on a Sunday morning when the music is playing and I'm leading or whoever is here leading in music and not singing. I don't care what your voice sounds like. I don't know how loud or how low it is. I don't care how much in tune you are. There is no excuse for I will tell my of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. There's no easier place in this world to sing praises to God. They're right here. That's the reason why I'm so happy that I have the opportunity to lead it. Not because I'm great, but because I have a gift of leading music. It's because I know, like I've told Pastor Charlie and Tim and others who have been here when I was asked to do it, I'm going to be singing anyway. I might as well be the one picking the songs out. Because I understand that there is something to sing about. There is something for us to rejoice over. In Hebrews chapter 2, again, my favorite commentator on all of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, in Hebrews chapter 2 says, But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through suffering. That's Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21. Okay? So through suffering, what does he do? He brings many sons to glory. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. While Jesus Christ, through his spirit, resides in all of us as believers, you can rejoice in knowing that when we sing together, that the presence of Jesus Christ is very real. When we lift up his praise, why? Because he says, Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus Christ, the son, is singing the praise of who? God, the father. We all have an audience of one. And here we are. Now, who is going to be the participants in this praise? What a list. And I love this. As Tim often will lead us in our prayer of supplication on Sundays and talk about those nations to whom the gospel has been very limited, if not completely absent. But you know what? The psalmist understands, just like John when he was recording the revelation from Jesus Christ in the last book of our scriptures, understood that that's not limiting God in any way. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. I'm sorry, there was an exclamation point in my in my notes of that, right? That wasn't something that was just, as those of you who fear the Lord, praise him. It was a shout. Praise the Lord. All you offspring of Jacob, all you descendants of Abraham, 
Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. So this effective praise isn't just in our singing, but it's in our service. Now there's others. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the ends of the earth. So when Jesus told his disciples to go ye therefore into what? All nations. <laughs> Teaching them. Making disciples. Baptizing them. Among them all. Not just to the surrounding counties or states or provinces. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. I can't wait. Every now and then, Amy will bring me a YouTube video from, uh, I think there was some group, I'm not sure what country in Africa they were from, but they were uh, just a group, and, and they were a cappello, uh, not a cappello, but a cappella singers, and they would sing... And the harmony was just great, but yet the accent, you, you knew they weren't from the south of the United States, that's for sure. But, oh, it was just so heartwarming because it reminded you that there are people who know about Jesus that didn't grow up in my backyard. That there are people who know about Jesus that didn't grow up in North Carolina. They didn't attend a Bible college like I did. But there are people in places on the face of this planet that if you were to set me right in the middle of it, I would never in a billion years guess where I was at. But they know him. And they sing about him. And if all we do for eternity is to sing together, that new song, not the ones that the Gettys wrote or one that we got from City of Light, but the new song the Holy Spirit gave us that we will be singing worthy is the Lamb that was slain. To receive blessing and honor, glory, Ever. Why? Because he hung on a cross. And he cried out to his father. He knew he was his father. He wasn't just whispering things into the air. He knew to whom he was speaking. He was forsaken. 
But then he wasn't. Then he wasn't. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. They will all, all bow down. Because kingship belongs to the Lord. So my Jesus strong shall come to reign to reign in majesty. The Lamb, the worthy Lamb of God arose. And we don't have to wait until next Sunday to celebrate. So what, Lord? Even so quickly come victory. Even posterity praise him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. If that doesn't give you reason to hope in this hopeless world, to know that even in the coming generation, there will be those who serve him. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Haley, Matt, hello, baby. He's got hope. Because Jesus Christ still reigns. Those of you who have children and you're wondering when that age is going to come before they're going to be held accountable for the Lord and you just pray and you hope. They come to know Christ as their Savior. Personally, not attached to you. Not attached to this church but attached directly to the Lord himself. There's hope because there's a generation that hasn't even heard of him yet that will believe and will serve him because the Bible tells me so. So, when you are in the midst of your suffering, no matter how extreme it may be. And you feel, you really feel like the psalmist who says, God, why? Why are you not answering my prayers? Why do I, why does my life look like you've abandoned me? To remember that he's the one who hears our prayers, that he hears us when we cry, that he's the one who knew before we were even born what we were going to experience today and tomorrow. And he's there. He's present with us. 
And that even though we feel like we are surrounded by the enemy, even though we feel like the devil is so real, he's roaring like a lion, wanting to devour us. Understand that Jesus is king. And he will ransom us. He will deliver us from the evil one. So that we can spend all of our days in this congregation and without praising him, serving him. Is that your trust today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are incredibly good to us. You have given us a word that's eternal, a word that will never pass away, a word that is powerful, a word that is sharp, a word that is able to even discern our thoughts and to convict us of where we need you the most. Father, I pray that your people would find comfort in your word today. I pray that your people would find hope in your word today. And I pray that should there be someone in this auditorium or anyone under the sound of my voice who has yet to place their trust completely in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as he hung there bearing our sin, that they would repent of their sinfulness and that they would trust completely in the work of Jesus Christ and his taking upon the wrath of God in his life and death as a payment for their sin and that they would be made alive even as Jesus Christ was brought back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would accomplish what you choose to do with your word today. May we see you to be wonderful. May our eyes be open to see your truth and that we would have ears to believe it and to see it, to understand it, and to live it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.